This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Last week, I mentioned that we were going to start publishing new episodes twice weekly for the immediate future, and maybe forever. Let's see how it goes. On Monday, we shared David Wengro and Yanis Varoufakis' conversation about the dawn of humankind. If you've not heard it yet, I urge you to give it a listen. It's a revelatory new account of humanity's past, with some provocative implications for our future. Our second episode of the week is a response to the unfolding tragedy in Ukraine. For International Women's Day, Hannah organised a conversation with two incredible women, Olia Hercules and Elissa Timoshkina. Both food writers, Olia and Elissa are Ukrainian and Russian respectively, and have come together to launch hashtag Cook for Ukraine, a campaign raising funds for UNICEF UK's Ukraine Appeal, which supports children and families displaced by the war. To donate or find out how else to get involved, head to justgiving.com slash fundraising slash cook for Ukraine. And here to explain more are Hannah, Olia and Elissa. There's a lot we, we could talk about today, International Women's Day and of course everything that's happened over the past weeks. But I want to start with the project with Cook for Ukraine. And as I say, it's obviously about uh, emphasizing the culinary traditions. It's about sharing love of recipes and food, not just dwelling on these images of, of destruction and devastation and, and tragedy. And I know that I would just wonder if you could explain um, why that's so important to you. Uh, well, when, whenever there is a uh, terrible war happening in the world and, you know, We've been through so many in the past, so you know, hundreds of years, really. But in this age, even in the past ten years, and um, there comes a point where everybody gets extremely exhausted. Like we are extremely exhausted. We have I have family in Ukraine right now, but even people that don't have a direct connection to Ukraine, you know, you just keep looking at the headlines, uh, looking at the stuff, and it's it becomes so raw but you still have to go on with your life. You have to look after your family. You have to work. You have to do everything. Psychologically, it's extremely difficult, not just for us, but for everyone. So I think uh, doing a project that kind of humanizes um, Ukrainians and what we're going through, that takes away from the uh, headlines and uh, connects you to the soul of um, my people and of the Russian people as well is extremely important so anything cultural or kind of like visceral in the way of family is really important uh, to keep highlighting just so we remember but without getting exhausted so we keep going, we keep reposting, we keep cooking, we keep educating people about uh, the people that are going through all of this. And that's why I think this project is so important. It puts a human 
face on something that looks so sterile or, 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 or devastating in the headlines. Yes, absolutely. For me, that was also essential. And of course, you know, between Ole and I, food is the language that we speak. So it was very natural that that would be the language we choose to talk about the conflict and to raise funds to support people in Ukraine. Um, but also it's really important that, as Ole said, you know, it can get so abstract and so confusing that when you cook, you know, what can be more intimate than that? Cooking and eating and sharing a meal. And when you know that there's a really beautiful story and that meal is particularly significant to people in Ukraine, you know, you feel like you're sharing that meal with them and you're really bringing it home. So that conflict is no longer an abstract concept somewhere in the news. It's actually something that you have personally connected to by cooking that meal. Mm. You're very good friends, both of you. And I feel that's so important and central to this too. The friendship between the two of you, which is representative of the friendship and the cultural bonds between the two countries. And that, you know, cannot get lost. Absolutely. And I think perhaps partly why this campaign has had the response that it did um, is because it's so natural, you know, it's not a kind of forced, quick, let's kind of come up with a cool idea that will sell. <laughs> it's very natural to us, you know, we've been friends for like 15 years. Long um, before we became food writers or anything. Exactly, long before we started careers in food and um, in a way we both kind of stand for the two sides of the conflict, you know, the two nations that were sadly put in such horrendous circumstances by a specific government. Both Olya and I have Ukrainian and Russian roots, and there's so many people on both sides of this conflict who are like, you know, that way as well. Actually, and almost proportionally, like, so I'm mostly Ukrainian with a Siberian grandma, and, um, and you've got Russian with a Ukrainian kind of lineage. So it's like a mirroring almost Completely. And it's also amazing that in our personal family histories that uh, Olya's Siberian grandmother took a train to Ukraine from Siberia. To uh, oh, sorry. And met my Ukrainian <laughs> grandfather on the way. And then that ended up in Ukraine. And yours is... And mine is, you know, the migration one, the opposite way from Ukraine to Siberia. Mm -hmm. So... Um, yeah, there are just so many beautiful and almost kind of mystical parallels in our lives that, of course, you know, it was a no-brainer when this whole horrendous thing happened that um, we just knew we had to do something, you know, and it was so natural and it was so, I don't know, just such a beautiful impulse to do something. Mm. Well, you came, you came to the protest with me on pretty much, you know, I don't I can't remember which day it was. It was pretty soon was after day. it happened. Yeah. It was the same day. Yeah. It was the same day. <laughs> it was the same day. And uh when I said to Lisa, you know, I'll see you there and she was there and uh, Lisa was crying and I was crying and we hugged each other and we just uh, and you have a connection kind of to cook for Syria as well with your friend who died a journalist friend who died during uh the war and we just thought maybe we can do something similar and uh, draw on the resources because our friends have set up Cook for Syria, so we thought maybe they can help us with this campaign. And it's been such an amazing success, and it's mostly thanks to you because I've been doing uh, other things <laughs> in the past few weeks, but thank you, Alisa. 
I'm going to actually just pick up on that you said you've been doing other things in the past couple of weeks. I think you said um, today on your Instagram post, instead of teaching how to make dumplings, I'm searching for army boots and giving interviews about my family to help raise awareness and influence the situation. And we're obviously, you know, I think we're blessed in this country with some amazing, I, I hope you agree, news reporters and lots of things. You know, we do get lots of information, but it's very hard to establish what's going on. It's um, almost sort of unbelievable for many of us. And I know that you've been in contact a lot with your own family and with your brother. And I wondered if you could just tell us from, from their perspective how, how it is. I can. And um, just to, to say, if, like, if I'm talking about my personal things, it's nothing to do with Cook with Ukraine and UNICEF. There's a reason why I have to say this, but anyway. So yeah, my family, uh, so all opinions are my own. Just saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm originally from the south of Ukraine. I'm from the Kherson from the Kherson region. A little town called Kachovka, only 50,000 people. Uh, so my parents are right now in their house in Kachovka, which is uh, is apparently under Russian occupation. Even though my parents uh, went to a huge protest in that town with thousands of uh, people from the town, a peaceful process, just waving flags and saying, just go home, go home. Yes, we speak Russian, it's fine. Nobody's oppressing us. In fact, if anything, Ukrainian language has been so suppressed for ages. You know, I remember myself when I was about 13 and I and I left Ukraine with my mom and I went to Cyprus uh, and I had to enter this um, uh, English school in Cyprus and there was a questionnaire and they said what's your first language and I put Russian and then I came back home uh, and second language Ukrainian and I came back home and I asked my mom mom I really don't understand why why is it that Russian is my uh, my first language which is not you know which is not a problem at all like we in fact we speak like a mixture of Ukrainian and Russian it's called Surzhik and it's beautiful it's fine and my mom at the time I don't think she had an answer she kind of like made some comments or whatever so we're you know in the south of Ukraine we speak Russian we speak Ukrainian and we just used to just live our lives you know and the other day, my parents have come out uh, on this protest and they just said, just go home. We're just living here. Like, we don't need liberation. We don't need, we don't need your humanitarian aid after you've bombed the hell out of Kherson, you know? So that's my parents. So sometimes I lose touch with them. So they're, they're trying to cut all communications uh, with south of Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, in a, uh, a couple of days ago, it was complete hell when for 24-7 I, uh, I couldn't reach my parents. Uh, but um, it's fine. It's my mom's birthday today, by the way. International so Women's International Day. Women's Day has a very, very special, uh, you know, meaning to me. Uh, I don't know, you know, its history is a bit muddled and it's all a bit Soviet and whatever. But actually, it has always been... It has always been the you know, power of women day to me because it's my mom's birthday. And she's 63 today. 63, I think. Either, either 63 or 64. She doesn't look either. Uh, and um, yeah, so they're there, but they're defiant and they are staying there. And you know, they were here in January. They were here, they came for New Year and for my dad's birthday. And they said, have you seen what's, you know what's happening? Like, why don't you guys stay, you know? Why don't you just stay? And they were like, no, no. We haven't done anything wrong. Like, what are we going to do here in the UK? Like, apart from obviously be with, with you and our grandchildren, but 
our home, our everything, our animals, you know, like dogs, ducks. My mom, they got a swan in their house that my dad rescued from some brutes in the field, you know. They're like, no, we're going to just, just be in Ukraine. And they're there. And they're not uh, seeking. They said, we will only flee if uh, actual bombs fall on our heads. So that's my parents. And then my brother is, uh, has been living in Kiev for the past couple of years. Uh, only a couple of weeks ago, he was working on setting up his um, startup of an eco-bike delivery system in Kiev. And uh, on Saturday, and that's, I think, what spurred my whole activism on. Uh, I, I, I'm sure that I would have got there eventually anyway, but it was his message that said, I'm going to join uh, the territorial defense in Kiev because he sent his kids to Lviv and he's like, but I'm going to stay. He's 46. We're just one day apart in our birthdays, but eight years apart in July. And he just said, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to join. And then he joined and then he sent me another, or oh, actually we spoke on uh, video and he said, Oh, yes, okay, so I joined, but they gave me a rifle, but um, it's winter, and uh, we're literally in our trainers and our coats, and we, we've literally just come out of our flats, and it's him, it's all civilians, like pacifists, like uh, bakers, uh, cafe owners, uh, accountants, dentists, plumbers, just absolutely just normal people that just two weeks ago were sitting in cafes and drinking flat whites, you know, and enjoying their life. Because Kiev was so... Everybody in Kiev was just like, okay, yes, there's all of this stuff happening, but we absolutely have nothing to fear because this is just our normal life. We're a normal European city. No way he's going to invade. And then they did. And then my brother is doing this thing. And when he told me that they have no helmets no vests, no even boots, no nothing, you know? And as soon as he told me that, I was just like, Hoo-fa. no, 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 no. And I immediately, I, I remember this moment because I was in the toilet talking to him, in the, cause in the restaurant with my, with my, with my uh, husband, my two-year-old son, and my mother-in-law, uh, who's amazing. Um, and I just went to them and I just said, okay, we gotta go home now. I've got to make this video appeal on my Instagram. I have 70,000 followers. Maybe people can help us. We need to fix this. And I started raising money. And um, it was a hell of a week. I've learned so much. Did you know that there's like special underwear for people who fight in these situations? I didn't know this. There is. We've sent them 130 pairs. Uh, it all arrived today. Uh, Woohoo! So that's why I'm actually able to be here and uh, I'm feeling a little bit more positive and empowered because we're doing a lot of stuff. And apart from that stuff, we're, I'm also giving interviews, being here, just raising awareness and just telling you my story and just telling you that I have a brother and I have my parents. And I actually, I have a, a big, huge extended family all over Ukraine. I have um, a, an opera singer cousin who's in uh, Kiev right now. She's my third cousin, better call her sister. Uh, she's there with her 11-year-old uh, daughter and her mom. I've got uh, uh, loads of cousins and, and my auntie in Odessa. I've got my auntie stuck in Berdyansk, who is just a few... who's very close to Mariupol, who's... maybe you've heard about the city that they're unable to leave right now. <sighs> there's, there's so much going on. And, but, 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 but. 
every time I speak to them on the phone, they are just poker faced. They're just strong. And they're just like, Olya, whatever you do, do not spread panic. Do not spread panic around Ukrainians. Do not spread, spread panic around people in the West. Everybody has to just keep their like psychological, you know, like their nervous systems intact because that's what Putin wants. He wants us to fall apart. He wants us to sit down. He wants us to start crying and he wants us to stop acting. So this is kind of like my message today to just keep going. Help us fight the information war. Repost things that, you know, that even if you don't want to do anything with the war, just spread kind of information about Ukrainian culture, you know, something like that, something that connects us all on a very kind of special, visceral way. Oh, no, not at all. We, we're so, so grateful to, to, to you for coming and telling your story. Um, and we'll come back, I hope, to a little bit more about what people can do, because I'm sure everyone in this room just would love to know every small thing that they can do to help. But you also wrote a very emotional uh, Instagram post the other day that really caught my eye about what it feels like at the moment to be Russian. And you said that they were your words, they sort of feel a certain shame and it's just so important, I think, for you to explain why that feels, you know, not the appropriate feeling for you right now at all. Mm. Well, as a Russian who lived in the West for the last 25 years almost, and also having um, closely studied uh, Soviet and Russian cultural history, I guess I have the benefit of this really useful, critical distance, but also very obviously embodied understanding of what it's like to be Russian. I've always had this very complex relationship to my own identity, um, you know, kind of ashamed of my accent, and I'm sure lots of people, you know, who have migrated feel that. But of course, um, you know, the political history of Russia doesn't give you a very welcoming start, <laughs> you know, and the, the idea that people have of Russia in general, partly because of the Cold War, but, you know, partly because of, um, you know, the political activity that Russia is doing around the world. It's never been easy. Um, and then, of course, you know, the 13 days ago or even, you know, prior to that, when there was already that tension, is he or is he not? You know, I, I felt horrendous. I mean, what can I say? Um, you know, horrendous because almost kind of for, for all of Russians, like, have we not done enough to stop this and why haven't we? Even though, you know, I've personally have done what I could from my position, you know, going to protests and writing a lot on my social media about it. And writing a beautiful book, which is and just thank absolutely you. gorgeous. And which yes. arrives here tomorrow. And kindness, which is, you know, a human thing. Like, it's nothing to do with him. Absolutely. Um... But, you know, still I can't shake it off. Um, so being at the protest with Olya on last Thursday, um, I got there first and I just stood there on my own, you know, in tears, deeply ashamed because I saw the Ukrainian people hugging and, and you know, and I just felt so profoundly where the truth is on that side of the problem. And I was heartbroken to find myself on the side of the falseness. Are you in touch with friends um, and family back in Russia? I think you are. You talk about protests and I just wonder yeah. how they're feeling there. Yeah. And also just wanted to say that Olya was absolutely fantastic and kind of making me feel a bit better about <laughs> being Russian and, you know, kind of 
hearing a Ukrainian friend who who's exactly yes, and you know it's and it was really I mean I knew that but it was really amazing to hear that my from a friend and that kind of you know boosted me a little and gave me the um, kind of you know that confusion that anger that I felt to channel that and to cook for Ukraine and that was kind of you know that all idea kind of came together within a couple of hours I was going to the protest it was really cold <laughs> we were very hungry <laughs> in a moment I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about food um, but just yeah, yeah to, but to about our friends in Russia and people in Russia in general um, it's also very you know life is just amazing in a way you know I coincidentally got a last minute job at Channel 4 News and um, part of my job is to help them you know get insight into what's happening in Russia uh, by translating stuff but also reaching out to people there so I've had this most incredible opportunity to reach out not just to friends but I've been talking to so many Russian people whom I've never met before and I just want to like applaud them for their bravery to just speak out. You know, I'm I'm a random person calling them up. It could have been a you know setup or who knows, but they were so kind and so open to talk about what's happening. And I feel like in the last you know ten days I've gained such closeness, weirdly, even by being here. But I've gained such closeness to the people in Russia, and it's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, I'm. I'm still in shock, just understanding the whole magnitude of the consequence of this war. Russia has been definitely set back into dark ages. You know, it's it's just barely made its way out of the horror of the Soviet Union. And within a week, he sent us back to ground zero. I mean, I also was saying that um, I've recently signed a contract for a new cookbook about Russia, which I was so excited, you know, and it was really hard work, I have to say. It was very hard to get yeah. that. So I was celebrating the hell out of myself for getting it, and I was doing so much research that um, I was actually going to go to Russia to travel all the way from St. Petersburg to the Far East, um, to the Sea of Japan, and I've met online, I've met so many people. I've, I've like, I had a Google map with all the places I'm going to go and people I'm going to meet and restaurants I'm going to eat at. I was like so full of energy and so full of love for like Russian food culture. And I mean, that's all gone now. I mean, there's, I, I, I mean maybe I'm being a bit too dramatic, but I can't imagine how um, Russia can, can get out of that easily. Uh, and, you know, people have been persecuted. There's so many people now just fleeing Russia. And, you know, I can't help but draw parallels to Nazi Germany in the late 30s. They've completely banned all independent news outlets, so there's absolutely no way you can now listen to a radio that's not feeding your state-sponsored propaganda. BBC is, doing, is gone. Is it BBC is doing the old school Soviet. Yes, uh, you have the yeah. Yeah, no, it's Work wonderful. For a couple of hours a day. Can you imagine that? I can't even imagine that this In is happening. Yeah, In exactly. 2022. Yeah, exactly. BBC has revived the frequencies that my mm. parents' generation would have been kind of like trying to catch in the Soviet Union to see what actually is going on in the world. Yeah, and I mean, the actual... Yeah, and I mean, it's just insane to think, you know, it's like 1984 is not science fiction, it's like current affairs now, it's just insane. I really hope that you do make that book, and I can guarantee I'm sure everyone here will still be longing to buy it, I certainly speak for myself. And I, I before I... I ask um, you for your questions I do want to ask you about the food which as sure. I said long before these 
devastating kind of few days and, and long before that. You guys have been writing and sharing recipes. Now everyone's on board. Sure. It's such a shame it took this. But we've seen some of the most beautiful, colourful, wonderful dishes just on our Instagram feeds. And I just wonder if you... And we could be here, I'm sure, all evening, but if you could just... Talk about just a couple of the things that, you know, really um, mean the most to you. Uh, okay, so in my family, so my, uh, my my youngest is two years old, and he's actually an amazing eater. He's, he just eats anything. He just hoovers up anything. But my older son, Sasha, who is 10, almost 10, uh, one of the first dishes that I've filmed him eat, weirdly, it's on Facebook. It comes up all the time. You know, like, oh, it's a memory of your son doing this. So one of them is Borscht. And he's sitting there when he's like just over two years old and he's uh, eating the Borscht, which is a broth and it's got all the vegetables in it and it's liquid and he's eating it with his hands, of course. And he, you know, he lifts something up and in Russian, because this is the language that I taught him first, because that's the language that I knew the, the best. And he just lifts something and I was like, mama, spaghetti. I'm like, no, 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 that's beetroot. You know, so, and he loves Borscht still, although he prefers my mom's to my own. <laughs> you know, we'll address that later. He has a good palate. Uh, <laughs> but then another cook. dish that he really, really loves is pilmeni, which is uh, the Siberian dumplings. He actually doesn't really like vareniki, which are Ukrainian and my favorite. But he's just like because he's a big like my husband. My new my my husband Joe is a vegetarian, so we he struggles with the vegetarian thing. Anyway, <laughs> he really loves pilmeni because they're like meat-filled uh, dumplings. And, um, you know, every time I say that, oh, I'm making dumplings, he's like, is this with pilmeni? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, uh, <laughs> maybe. So, you know, there's, there, are, there are so many dishes from Ukraine and also from my Siberian grandma that are so extremely important to us as a family. And I really refuse, as much as I love Ukraine and as much as I hate what's going on in it right now, I refuse to politicize language and politicize culture because it's not the culture's, it's not the language's fault. It's not my friend's fault who are identifying as Russian or whatever. It's just one mad person who I don't know why there isn't a global psychiatric unit that can just like take someone like that away like why isn't there one I think, I, yeah I think a lot of people are wondering that <laughs> um Elisa you I mean I was lucky enough to speak to you last week and you were describing a very simple delicious dish of Olias but perhaps you could describe some of your favorites and as I say your Instagram account is not one to go on if you're hungry at the moment <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting that, of course, um, you know, both Olya and I are struggling to eat right now. So it's a bit of a, you know, a strange moment to be promoting food so much where, you know, the stress and everything we're going through makes it quite hard to cook um, and eat. But for me, I mean, I was really lucky that I was raised by three generations of women in my family. And when I was a kid, I, um, I lived with my Jewish Ukrainian great grandmother. Yes. <laughs> so I guess like, you know, to me, as a child, I obviously, and funnily enough, um, like she spoke with a very heavy Ukrainian accent. So as a toddler, when I just started to speak, I spoke with a Ukrainian accent as well, because I obviously just picked up whatever she would say. I would repeat it after her. Very soft G's. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's um, yeah, it's quite kind of a, our favorite kind of family jokes. You know how I was telling uh, famous Sov uh, Soviet poems, but with a Ukrainian accent. Um, <laughs> So her food for me is really, you know, the food of my family, the food of my childhood, and of course, you know, it's such a huge part of my identity. Um, so to me, I guess, um, she was a great baker, so she would make uh, poppy seeds, uh, buns, and um, kind of strudel-type uh, pastries, and um, also kind of, you know, she was Jewish, but we never were, you know, open about it for obvious reasons in the Soviet era, but then kind of coming here and being part of the Jewish community, I realized that those were rugulas and, you know, tasting it here. I was like, oh my God, that's what my great-grandmother was feeding me. So, you know, that's a huge part. And then also I have a very uh, beautiful memory of her making kulich, which is an Easter bread. And um, that's something that both Russian and Ukrainian Orthodox uh, cultures share. And it does take um, a lot of effort to get the dough right. Um, so she would always, whenever she was started, she was very religious. Um, even though she was Jewish, she was converted to Christianity. Uh, she would always put on a white robe and then she would start the dough um, and we were never allowed to swear in front of the dough. It was, it was the holy of the holies. You're um, in the right place to talk about <laughs> yes. holy dough. Absolutely. You don't ever swear in front of your dough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I remember having that memory of her as a child. Um, we actually shared a room, so I would see her in the evening kind of through my sleepy eyes she would put on that beautiful white robe and walk into the kitchen and I can still see this massive blue enamel casserole that she would put the dough into massive one, massive one. So and you make enough for 15 people at least yeah absolutely and it would be like overflowing with the dough and she would be you know kneading that dough and as as a kid I would just watch that in the darkness thinking what the hell is she doing but it just looked so magical it was almost like witchcraft it was fantastic <laughs> oh um j just finally I'd, I'd really you mentioned some of the things people can do in terms of information but i just wonder if you could both um give us some insight into what you think are the most helpful things that people can do at the moment there's obviously a pervasive sense of helplessness but i know that there are petitions of course to do with refugees in this country as uh, beyond cook for ukraine so beyond Cook for Ukraine. Uh, I am uh, looking into organizing a proper kick-ass march uh, outside Downing Street, I believe. I haven't got the details yet, but I think the uh, Ukrainian family scheme is a mess. It is ridiculous. Um, people on the you know, on the side of the line, I mean, I'm sure they're overwhelmed with information. They haven't had time to train people, but they're asking really stupid questions to very traumatized people. I think that Britain should match uh, the European three-year waiver visa. Like, there are not going to be that many people coming in. Like, it's really far away. You know, and even people with uh, uh, Ukrainian family who are British are having such a hard time to come in. So my mission for the next couple of weeks is actually to maybe do some marches and some demonstrations and, uh, you know, social media uh, campaigns where we demand that Piti Patel, uh, you know, changes the course and like just scraps the Ukrainian family visa because it's a complete mess. Do you have anything to, to add or to anything else you sort of would encourage people to do when they leave here this evening? I would really encourage p 
people to immerse themselves in Ukrainian culture. If you, and of course, our um, just giving page for the Cook for Ukraine campaign is a great place to start. In a sense, if you want to start with food, and of course, you already I see have the book to have right now. If you want to learn more about. Um, Ukraine and its food and its history, uh, but also immerse yourself through literature and film. Um, Ukrainian literature is absolutely amazing. You know, Gogol is the one of the greatest writers, um, and he writes about food in the most brilliant way. And of course, also, this just very quickly, I have this anthology of Ukrainian poetry, and at the moment, I don't have time to translate it properly. But I'm going to uh, launch a little thing where I do like a Ukrainian poem a day from Ukrainian poets that have never been translated into English. I'm a translator by trade, so one like well, the yeah, you've got all the time to, to <laughs> so do that at the like, moment. Tune into that as well, because that's also a beautiful thing. Also, like if you hear about any Ukrainian concerts or anything like that, like just promote culture and love and kindness. And yes, we need help on uh, immediate help to help my brother and everyone else to fight. But also, if, even if you're just promoting Ukrainian culture and also being kind about Russian culture, that also really helps. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, do, does anyone have have a question? Please don't. It's always the first person who's a little bit um, reticent to put up their hand, but there is some time for questions. So if anyone does, please feel free. Yeah, well done. First first one. Um, yeah. Um, well, it's not really a question, but I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you for coming here. It's really inspiring. Um, I, I really resonate with this because uh, what you said about being ashamed, you shouldn't really have to be ashamed. It's still culture, and we can't forget that as well. It's not, the, it's not the people, it's the people person. They're celebrating Russian, but also incredibly important. Can I, just, can I just second that? That you know, Dostoevsky will never be, uh, will never not be my favorite writer. The idiot like formed me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when I was twelve, when I read it. But it's, I'll, I'll you know. Yeah, and a friend of mine um, said, and I'm, I'm kind of stealing his idea and starting another hashtag, Pushkin, not Putin. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. <laughs> I urge you, if you haven't, to, to read Alyssa's wonderful posts about that because it really hammers home, home how important it is what you said, that this is, yeah, this is not Russians and Russians. This is one, one man. Um, yeah. Uh, culture includes religion. And... Um, what is your view about the stance of the Russian Orthodox Church at the moment? And <clears throat> would a protest outside the Orthodox Church in London, to use your expression, kick ass? <laughs> I thought that they were quite supportive, were they not? That's a brilliant question. I mean, as I'm sure we all know, at least for the last 15 years, Russian Orthodox Church and the Kremlin are one. So, yes, I mean, it's very problematic because, of course, you know, there are people who are, I mean, I'm atheist, but there are people who are genuinely religious, like my parents, for example, and I often debate with them, how can you support a religion that at the same time is part of this horrendous institution? So, for me, I find it highly problematic. But at the same time, of course, you know, there are people who are genuinely religious and it's a very intimate and personal choice. So, you know, I wouldn't want to kind of encourage any widespread, you know, protest against 
people who are religious and who are of Russian Orthodox faith. But at the same time, I think it really is important to understand the role that the Russian church as an institution plays in the state propaganda, in corruption, and, you know, we all know the horrendous pussy riots, arrests that, you know, to me it was like the first alarm bell that went off that this is the beginning of the end. And, yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for people, and I guess to say kind of to my previous comment that, you know, to really try and educate yourself. And as Olya said, you know, know your sources and reach out to kind of trusted academics and news outlets and, yeah, I mean, educate yourself about the role of um, Russian Orthodox Church in Putin's government. And, um, you know, I trust that you will make the right decision. Uh, and I have just something little to add. So I've never been religious. Uh, my mom and my family have always, you know, Easter is a huge holiday. And my mom would go at five o'clock in the morning to the church and bring the kulich, or as we call it, Pascha in Ukraine to the church and she would stand in the queue to get it you know whatever whatever the word is i don't know blessed blessed yeah that's it but we're not religious like my family is not religious but they you know my my older son has been baptized yeah in a in a ukrainian orthodox church in my town but i've never really understood religion ever before last week uh, which doesn't mean that I've become religious in terms of like I'd suddenly believe in this like God, whoever he is. But what I have started believing in is my ancestors and the earth. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I had a really dark moment a couple of days ago where I actually had so quite self-destructive feelings. I think I was really exhausted. I didn't have any sleep. I didn't have any food. I was convinced that Putin was going to raise Kiev to the ground and my brother was going to die. So I was in a completely desperate psychological situation. And what I did was I sat on the sofa in my living room and I picked up a photo of my uh, grandma Lucia, my maternal grandmother, and my auntie, who was in the same picture, who also died uh, of pancreatic cancer during the first war in Ukraine in 2014, and me. And I, uh, and I took this photo and I pressed it to my chest and I closed my eyes and I imagined that uh, their remains, their particles, their molecules, whatever was left of them is flowing through the roots of the earth. And I've also watched the Fungi documentary on Netflix recently <laughs> and I've realized how intelligent this communication is at the core of the earth and I just, it, it, just for myself, like I'm not talking about some juju mystical stuff, like I'm just talking about just, Im just for myself, for my peace of mind, for like some sanity, I just imagine that maybe my grandma and my auntie are flowing through the roots of the earth and maybe they know about what's going on and they're taking action. So I, if you ever feel, uh, heart, you know, if you ever feel psychologically kind of like in the dumps, maybe you can imagine a similar thing and maybe there's power in that. Um, I think sadly we're going to leave it there, but please do uh, stay. There's more, isn't there? Uh, more to drink and all the proceeds from the drink go, of course, to cook for Ukraine. We've got the most wonderful Ukrainian Vodka. Where are you? Dima's vodka. Dima's vodka. My Dima is here next to my mum. Dima, can we give you a little cheer? Um, so yeah.
in appreciating Ukrainian culture, drink Ukrainian vodka and Russian vodka. Um, but thank you all very, very much for coming and thank you both so, so much. It's a huge honor to have you both here. Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred Olia Hercules and Elisa Tomoshkina and was presented and produced by Hannah McInnes. The series is made by me and Dana Outcult, and the editor is John Doughty. Please consider donating to Olia and Elisa's campaign at justgiving.com slash fundraising slash cook for Ukraine. And thanks to Layla's Bakery in West London for hosting the evening. If you want to find out more about the background to the Ukraine-Russia conflict, how to Academy is hosting a free live stream with Simon Seabag Montefiore and Luke Harding on the 30th of March. You can register to watch and donate at howtoacademy.com. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>